Well, good evening. Thanks for being here tonight. We're going to be going through a number of different passages of Scripture. You don't need to turn there uh, when we get there, but you can if you want to. Let me just start off with a couple of them. Matthew 16, 25 says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 23, 12 states, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And finally for now, Matthew 7, 13 through 14 declares that we should, quote, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word, and as we continue to open his word tonight, I pray that we will get from it the insight that he wants us to have. And I want to emphasize in that passage I just read, Matthew 7, 13-14, Jesus says the path inside or after the narrow gate is also difficult that leads to life. That's very important. And it's easy to miss that. He's warning us ahead of time that something about the narrow path is not easy. It's hard enough finding the narrow gate. And then once we get beyond the narrow gate onto the narrow path, he needs us to know that it is fraught with difficulties. Navigating it is simply not easy. And the reason it's not easy will hopefully become clear this evening. Now, I will readily admit, because I know that most of you don't know me that well, but I will readily admit that I am not the humblest man in the world. And it has to do with the fact that within me is this ugly controlling factor we call the sin nature, which cooperates with self. Self is always demanding to be recognized, honored, lifted up, and given the freedom to do whatever it wants to do. You know that as well as I do. It often makes us want to throw up our hands in frustration and agree with the Apostle Paul in his own complaint that he noted in Romans 7.24 when he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Well, we'll look at the entire paragraph of Romans 7, 21 to 25 in a minute, but I want to relate something to you that highlights my own eagerness to exalt self that Paul refers to in verse 24. In, in fact, I have a couple of examples from my life, and it's not that I like talking about myself. What it is is that I don't mind sharing with you my faults, my foibles, my failures, because out of those things, God brought victory. And so hopefully it encourages you. Based on what Jesus tells us about the narrow way being difficult, I'd like to take the time to show that though we are prone to give way to self, there is a clear, clear, scripturally clear, but not necessarily easy, and in fact, a difficult way around self. That's what this whole message is about tonight. Jesus warns us of the problem beforehand to make us aware of what we face, but to also let us know that the difficulties are not insurmountable because he provides a way of escape, as Paul later tells us, 
or a workaround. In each case, we are plagued with temptations or trials or difficulties. Now, the difficult part is in facing each trial or temptation and in actively seeking him to look for the particular solution for each situation. Now, I'm probably talking to the choir. I know this isn't necessarily new to you, but I'm hoping that maybe what I bring out tonight might be a little bit new, something that is new to you, a different way of looking at something you've known about for years. I've known about this for years. I've known about this for years, but let's, let me, let me uh, back up here. So first, there are really three things that we need to do. Every time we face a temptation or a trial or a difficulty, first, we must listen to God to seek the solution. We've all heard the, the expression, seek and ye shall find. And often we equate that with finding salvation. It is that, absolutely, 100%, but it's more than that. It is the process by which we navigate the narrow path. Every time we encounter a trial, a temptation, a difficulty, we seek Him for the solution related to that trial, that difficulty, or that temptation. How? Well, it's obvious, you know it as well as I do, by going to the Lord in prayer. And later on, in this message, I want to focus on what Christ did and how he worked this out in his life. So first, we've got to seek God to find the solution that he wants us to have. And then second, we must listen to God to find or grab hold of that solution that he reveals to us that allows us to overcome the trial or temptation. And third, we must then do what he says and use that solution to gain the victory. Now, we're going to look at several examples, as I mentioned, from my own life and also the life of our Lord and fleshing these things out. <clears throat> now, even though Jesus did not have a sin nature as we do, the Bible tells us that he was, quote, in all points, tempted as we are, yet without sin, unquote, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Now, that doesn't mean every single temptation we experience, he experienced. We're talking about the overall temptations that we experience in this life and how deadly those things can be to us. He experienced them. And at every turn, he was able to be victorious. He understands completely what we deal with. And because he remained free of sin his entire life, he is able and willing to help us when we are faced with trials, temptations, difficulties that dog our heels and make us fall. I'm now 66. I became a Christian at the age of 13. I remember that day vividly. It will never fade from my memory, even though I have certainly been somewhat aware of the concepts that I'm sharing tonight. It seems I've only really been learning what I'm going to share tonight just over the past four to six months, or maybe a little bit longer. I feel as though I should have known it years ago, and it's not as if I haven't studied scripture. I have a bachelor's in Bible, a master's in biblical studies, and a doctorate in theology. Now, I don't say that to brag because it's to my chagrin that I'm just now learning what should be, by now, second nature. Maybe you can relate? So, in seeking God 
to seek the solution. Let's look at that. A few weeks ago, I am embarrassed to say that I unfortunately escalated a verbal situation when I should have been far more willing to let it go and watch it peter out to nothing. However, that option wasn't good enough for me. I had to ensure that the other individual understood that I would not be belittled or disrespected. So instead of approaching it with humility, when they pushed, I pushed back. The whole situation, as I recall it now, was so ridiculous that I should be ashamed of myself. And in fact, I was ashamed of myself. I lost sleep over it as I prayed fervently about it and replayed that situation in my mind quite a few times. I didn't see that person for several days and had already decided that I would apologize for my lack of humility by making the situation worse, by escalating it. But it was important to me to apologize to that person, not by phone, but by face, face to face. Now in the interim, I'm sure you can imagine the enemy of our souls came right alongside me to condemn and accuse. I had to agree with the accusations that I had acted in a way that did not honor God. In fact, I sought the solution by admitting first that I had exalted self. I had to admit that. And when I did eventually see the person, I went out of my way to sincerely apologize for my selfishness and for my lack of humility. Now, at that point, it did not matter to me what, what the other person's response would be. That was beyond my control because I understood that it was my responsibility to, in humility, address it, admit my failure, regardless of how they responded. Sure, it'd be great if they said, oh, don't worry about it. We all make mistakes. I didn't know that that's what's, what was going to be the case. The other person, however, was very gracious and kind and immediately accepted my honest and heartfelt apology. Now, as you can imagine, the weight was lifted off my shoulders. The sleepless nights I had experienced because of a situation that the enemy blew out of proportion in my mind, but I was still guilty of, went away and sleep returned. But there was a nagging question in my mind, like Paul's own question in Romans 7.24, which ultimately relates to the fact that Jesus warned us traveling through and beyond the narrow gate down that narrow path is difficult. Why does this happen? in our lives, doing the things we don't want to do and not doing the things we do. Well, it's very much like hiking in a way, although hiking is not an immoral thing, like not being humble and pushing back on somebody. If you've ever hiked around here, you know that you encounter basically two types of paths. I love to take our two dogs and go to, you know, one of the parks around here. Uh, it's just a good deal of fun for my dogs. And of course, it's great exercise for me and them. And I'm out in the wilderness enjoying God's creation. My wife and I love to do this. But when she can't come with me, I just take the dogs and go. But that said, I quickly learned that depending on which type of trail I'm on, which type of the two main trails I'm using, I need to be very aware of what's at my feet in order to enjoy the hiking experience. One path that I've encountered is often much wider and generally free of hazards. There are not a ton of rocks, sticks, pine cones, fallen branches or logs, and ruts in the ground. 
You're able to look ahead and see a wide level path that allows you to look around or even up as you hike. Your eyes don't have to be glued to the ground because of hazards on the path. Now, the other type is the one that's very narrow and it is filled with rocks or a rocky terrain, sticks, branches, quick ups and downs, and essentially a variety of hazards, especially these big long limbs or these roots that come out of the ground out of nowhere. If you take your eyes off the path in front of you to look around and enjoy the scenery, there's an excellent chance. You're gonna catch your foot on something and you're gonna go face down. It's the nature of that particular type of path that requires the hiker to always be aware of potential difficulties while hiking. That way you're not taken by surprise. Be aware of it. It's gonna be hazardous probably. So not only is this true in hiking, but it's true in the Christian life itself as we travel along the narrow, difficult path of obedience to God. Now, if we are not careful as we walk this path, we will end up hurting ourselves and others because of the hazards. What makes traveling this narrow path difficult is that we have our sin nature, which (coughs) loves to distract us with self to gain mastery over us, ultimately causing us to fall. Self wants to be dominant. You know that as well as I do. We all know the biblical reason for that too, as noted in the Romans text. Let's look at Romans 7, 21 to 25. I find then a law, as Paul speaking, that when I do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God. That's his druthers. That's what he wants to do. But with the flesh, the law of sin, there's nothing good in our flesh. And we know that. So even though Paul asked that famous question in verse 24, who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? He also provides the answer to it for our benefit in verse 25, which is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. However, I'm also going to admit that this has not always made this much sense to me. And I probably have not gotten to the end of what God actually means by it. Yes, I get the fact that in Christ, I am delivered from this body of death, but ultimately that's future, right? Ultimately, ultimately that's future. One day I will have a glorified body. The sin nature will be surgically removed from me. Everything about me, thought, word, deed, action, everything will glorify God. There will never be a hint of sin in me and it will never have any effect on me. Temptation be gone. But that's not now. But Paul is also talking about victory that we gain in Christ now. And you know that. And I know that, and that is the difficult part of walking that narrow path. I am left 
thinking about my own personality, my character, my flaws, only to realize that while some of my rough spots have been sanded off by the Holy Spirit as I look back and compare, I still have a massive way to go before I complete my race to the finish line, as Paul would say, before I am made completely whole and without sin. In fact, as I mentioned, that sinless state will not exist for me until after I die. Now, Mark has spoken about this victory, and I'm paraphrasing him when he said, we make tiny steps of victory. Sometimes those tiny incremental steps are not good enough for me, though. Maybe you feel the same way. Knowing that, it can be easy to think, well, what's the big deal? Why should I be concerned about those things in my life that continue to plague me? Isn't the Lord simply eventually going to deal with it? Well, yes, he is. And I should be concerned about them because if they are sin and self-related, God wants them gone. My job is to cooperate with God, to turn to God, to find a way to cooperate with him so that this happens more readily, more consistently. What is Paul ultimately telling us in Romans 7? He's saying he believed he should be able to obey the Mosaic law in verse 22. It's not so hard, is it? That was the intellectual part of his, his life. His brain and the way he understood things from a Jewish perspective made sense to him. I should be able to follow the, Jew, the Mosaic law. What's so hard about that? Come on, do what's right. That's what God wants. That's what honors him. However, in daily life and practice where the rubber meets the road, Paul found himself in rebellion against what he knew was right. This natural rebelliousness was something he couldn't seem to get out of himself. In Romans 7:24, Paul reveals just how terrible he felt about himself because of the tension created by the law of wanting to do good versus the law of wanting to live in rebellion. Dr. Thomas Constable comments on this verse by stating, quote, the agony of this tension and our inability to rid ourselves of our sinful nature that urges us to do the things that lead to death come out even more strongly here. What Christian has not felt the guilt and pain of doing things that he or she knows are wrong? I bet you can relate. And if you've never felt any guilt, and if you've never felt any pain, and I'm not talking about condemning yourself because we don't ever need to do that. <clears throat> but if you've never felt guilt or pain about giving in to self and sin, maybe you're not doing it right. Maybe I'm not doing it right. <clears throat> so what Christian can't relate to that? Well, after this recent situation where I escalated it instead of de-escalated it, I am again reminded of my own sin by giving place to self rather than approaching the situation in humility. Now, it is difficult to admit that there are aspects of my personality and character that continue to need divine surgery. I hate that. That should not surprise me, though. But somehow it does, every time. It seems the more we try not to sin, the more we do sin. And I've seen this work even in the more innocuous and amoral things. In life. Let me give you another personal example from my own life that I've successfully worked through only with the Lord's help, 
but it was a huge problem to me for a number of years. You may find this hard to believe, but I used to be nearly 100 pounds heavier than I am, weighing in at a whopping 255 pounds at five foot seven. Now, I didn't really think I was overweight at all. Now, one day at the doctor's office, when he and I were talking, he ventured to say to me, meekly as possible, that I was morbidly obese. What? How rude! Where was his bedside manner? Didn't, didn't this medical professional know the difference between morbid obesity and just simply being big boned? Well, I was offended. I left thinking he clearly had no clue. But eventually, I began to admit that there was obviously a connection between my severe overweight state and my poor health. I was suffering from high blood pressure that doctors were having a hard time controlling, even with five different blood pressure medications. I was warned that I was developing congestive heart failure, which was a terrible way to die. And I was already in the beginning stages of what is called metabolic syndrome, where the body begins to develop numerous serious health problems because it is working so hard to try to maintain itself under all this excessive weight. Yet the Bible tells us that our bodies or the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. I was not taking proper care of my body, the Holy Spirit's home within me. I was abusing it. It affected not only my physical health, but made it very difficult to cl think clearly because of a constant fogginess and a lack of energy. I recall one day waking up and feeling like I was sitting under a huge load of cow manure. I couldn't breathe that well. My head was very foggy. It was difficult to think. I was very hot and extremely fatigued and nothing in life was pleasant. I don't really know how my loving wife put up with me at that point, but she did. And she also was constantly praying for me. So that day, I finally realized I had a problem and I turned and cried out to God, literally begging him to heal me from my situation. Of course, I was asking him to just zap me and make it all better. And looking back, I realized that had he done that, he certainly could have, but had he done that, I would have learned absolutely nothing. I would have continued with the stupid eating habits I had and eventually I would have got the 100 pounds plus some back. He did heal me. He did answer my prayer. But it took just over four years as he took me by the hand and guided me through a long process toward good health. So the first thing I had to do was turn to him to seek the solution to my problem. And he helped me. I saw it. Now, it may seem obvious to you, but it was what I ate and how much I ate. That was my problem. But now what, a diet? Well, those only work as long as you stay on the diet, I needed something better. And I needed something that would help me ignore the temptations related to eating. And specifically, my biggest problem was eating sugary treats and drinking sugary treats. I could have them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and desserts after each. So after I sought God for the solution, the next step was to listen to him in finding the solution for me. So it began with a trip to an allergy fibromyalgia specialist in Florida. 
There, I learned what types of food exactly were problematic for me. And I also learned something else that I was unaware of that I have and will always have a recurrent Epstein-Barr viral infection that will pop up when life becomes stressful for me. I learned I had to change my perspective and outlook. I had to do things differently. And as I mentioned in my case, sugary treats were killing me, literally. They were the main problem, but not the only thing that was killing me. But I had to do something about that. I knew I needed to cut way back and even eliminate sugary treats, food or drinks, wherever I could. But that was easier said than done. The more I tried to avoid sugary treats, the more I wanted to eat or drink them. All I could think about was having sugar when I was trying to avoid it. It's the most frustrating thing in the world for me because I can crave sugar any time or day or night. It's always been my comfort food in spite of how bad it can be for me. There was a time when I would down a dozen Oreo cookies before dinner while my wife was making dinner and then have a sugary dessert after dinner and a sugary soda during dinner. And then I was wondering why I was turning into a rhinoceros. I began to realize that my thinking and focus desperately needed to change, but how to do it? How to work around the problem of sugar cravings that dictated what I ate all too often? Well, the Bible says in James 4, 7, to resist the devil and he's going to flee from you, correct? Jesus did that in Matthew 4. But first we need to seek and submit to God. Paul echoes the same thought in Ephesians 6. When he speaks of the armor of God, he says when, quote, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, in both of those instances, it seems like we're supposed to plant our feet, grit our teeth, become an immovable object against the temptation to do what God does not want us to do. Okay, so I planted my feet, I gritted my teeth, and I stand in place trying my best to ignore temptation. I tried that. It can work, but is it my energy that's resisting or is God resisting through me? The whole thing just wasn't satisfying to me. I was missing something. Maybe I wasn't understanding the resisting part the way James and Paul meant it. <coughs> then a thought came to me which literally smacked me across the face. I wish I could say actually literally, but it felt like it. Those are the best because I tend to remember them. I began to realize that every decision we make throughout our day always ends up in choosing a specific reward or consequence. Everything. Why was I so drawn to sugary treats? What about them made me want them more and more and more and more, even to the point where I started getting nauseous, but I'd still keep eating them? Well, they tasted good, and they provided a comfort to me that other foods didn't necessarily provide. They also increased the endorphins so that my brain felt more alive for a while. So the reason I would reach for sugary treats was due to the fact that I knew these treats made me feel good at least for a while. What I discounted or didn't notice was the fact that these same sugary treats, while initially making me feel really good, increased my weight and created health issues for me, ultimately making me feel not so good. 
So because of this realization, I began to understand that my regular way of thinking and my focus had to be replaced with something else. But what? For me, the reward of eating sugary treats came almost immediately with comfort and endorphins. But I needed to find another reward that I could reach for to help me turn away from the sugary treats. And in my case, it turned out to be losing weight, the weight scale. I noticed that when I stopped with the sugar, even for a short period of time, I began to lose weight. As I continued avoiding sugar, I continued losing weight. The scale would measure lost weight in increments of tenths. So every time I got on the scale, I'd lost 0 0.4, 0 0.6 pounds. So the solution for me changed from the reward of craving sugar because of how it made me feel to the reward of craving lower numbers on the scale as my new outlook and new reward. Suddenly, it started becoming easier because there was a different goal and reward to focus on. Eliminating sugar created a struggle in me daily because I was always thinking about and craving sugary treats. But by replacing the sugar craving with a weight loss craving, with visible results on the scale, and also being able to fit into clothes that I hadn't fit in in a long time, the problem for me actually was solved. So I sought God to uh, for the solution. And then once I sought him, I sought him and found the solution. And then I identified the problem, which was the constant cravings. And I sought God and found the solution to that problem, which was the reward of weight loss almost immediately. And then better mental and physical health over the long haul. And because of this, the temptation to constantly eat sugar literally became pretty much nothing for me as I saw an alternative reward to giving to that temptation. And I hope I'm making sense. That's a lot of verbiage, but the reality is to sum up, we need to replace one thing with another. And we'll find out how that's done in just a minute. Matter of fact, we're going to get into it right now. Let's look at a situation with Jesus. Hebrews 12. This is what verses one and two says. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And this is the, the, the whole crux of the whole thing. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, unquote. So in Jesus's case, he was clearly tempted to want to avoid the cross, which was the problem for him, quote unquote. That was the problem. We know the night before he was crucified, as he agonized in the Garden of the Gethsemane, before he was arrested and brought to numerous illegal trials and then mocked, put a crown of thorns on, slapped, beaten. And that was even before he got to the cross. He knew what was coming. He knew what was coming. And then when we get to the cross, the pain and agony he suffered through there and the separation that he would experience that he had never experienced 
ever before. Separation from the father, he would experience that as the father turned his back on his son and poured out his wrath on his son so that he doesn't have to pour that out on you and me. This is what Jesus faced in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know his prayer, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He had to pray that at least three times. But let's look at the situation just to see what Jesus did. So in this instance, we gla- he, he, he sought God for the solution, didn't he? He was overwhelmed with anxiety and angst. He was anguishing under the weight of what was coming. And he sought God, the Father, to help him find a solution. The amount of agony and pain, everything associated with it, was the problem. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted, severely tempted, to say, take it from me, please, take it. I don't want to do this. He didn't. He was without sin. He, he mouthed those words, but immediately followed it, but not mine, but yours be done. So that was the solution or lead, led him to the solution. And what does the Hebrew text <clears throat> 12, 1 and 2 tell us was the solution? It was joy. Joy through prayer and submission. It was the joy that Jesus began to experience as shown by the Father that Jesus literally embraced in knowing exactly what he would accomplish by going to the cross and doing everything according to the Father's will. That joy was the thing that he focused on that allowed him to move toward the cross unashamed, unafraid, and despising the shame unafraid of the agonizing injuries to his body and the abject spiritual and emotional separation from God the Father. The solution became his response to the temptation to call it quits. It was the workaround. The promise of a reward left him with unparalleled joy that gave Jesus exactly what he needed to refocus on something other than the temptation to not want to go to the cross because of the pain and the insult of it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us this very important truth. No temptation has taken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, I don't know about you, but Jesus, this is telling us that Jesus was not given more than he could bear the night before he was crucified. And yet we understand from scripture how tremendously agonizing it was for him to go through. 
The way of escape came because he sought God the Father. God the Father provided the solution, which was inescapable joy at what he would accomplish. And Jesus firmly embraced it. And that's what got him through it. The temptation was still there. Notice it says in the last part of that text that you may be able to bear it. Bear what? The temptation. The temptation remained, but it became so small and so insignificant compared to the joy that God the Father gave Jesus that I'm sure some of the tears he cried were tears of joy because of what he would accomplish. And because of it, you have salvation. I hope you have salvation. If there's someone in this room who does not have salvation, I pray that you'll talk to somebody at the end of this service. But if you have salvation, it's because Jesus was so joyful about what he would accomplish. I never truly understood that as much as I do now because the things I've gone through with every temptation God allows to come our way, he will provide a literal way of escape, a workaround, if you will, that allows us to ignore the temptation by focusing on the reward that he provides that's on the other side of it. For Jesus, it was the joy he knew he would experience by successfully navigating the upcoming illegal trials, the beatings, the mockings, everything that I said. He succeeded because he fixed his gaze on the solution provided by the Father rather than the temptation provided by Satan. Jesus knew that by focusing on the joy as a result of doing exactly as the Father had decreed, there would be manifold blessings for many, many people throughout history before he returns physically to this world. I can't wait for that day. That joy, that joy carried him through in spite of the pain, in spite of the agony. For me in my situations that I highlighted earlier, while they're not at all comparable to what Jesus went through, the same principles apply in the situation regarding my weight. As long as I continue to keep my eye on the solution, the workaround, focusing on the results on the scale and my improved health and the fact that I can fit in clothes that I haven't fit in for years, all of that allows me to ignore the cravings of my flesh and the temptation provided by the enemy so that I am able to control what I eat. And it's not difficult. As long as I focus on that reward of weight loss. The temptations are often still there, but they have no real control over me as long as I stay focused away from them. In the first situation that I relayed where I swallowed my pride and apologized for escalating a situation, I was able to focus on the fact that by doing so, God would create within me a greater sense of humility. Now, it would have been great if I had done what was right to begin with and understood that, wait a minute, wait a minute, Fred, back up, go for humility here, not self. But I didn't. But God still loves me. God still forgave me. God still provided for me and gave me a workaround. So focusing on the result, humility made it easy to look away from the demands of self and glorify God with greater humility because isn't that what he wants to create within all of us? The character of Christ and who is more perfectly humble 
and righteous and sinless than our Lord and our Savior. What is it you are facing today? What appears to have you in its clutches and you feel overwhelmed by it? You feel unable to ignore it, to remove yourself from it. It doesn't matter if you're six, 16, or 66. We all face temptations and God wants us to have the victory over each and every one of them. It can only be done by first seeking God for the solution to the problem. We need to seek him. We've got to know what the problem is in order to look for God's way of escape or solution. Second, once we seek him for the solution, we need to listen to him to find or identify the solution. We seek God and we find it. Often we hear that in the context of salvation, and it is that. Seek God with all your heart and you will find God and the salvation that he pours out onto you. But it doesn't end there. It should be the way we approach God and approach life every day as we travel the narrow, difficult path. What is it that will help me see a situation differently so that I can avoid succumbing to the temptation and follow self's dictates? Third, and finally, once we see seek God to find the solution and find the workaround, we then need to obey God and embrace and use that solution because that's where the victory is. Are we going to do this perfectly in this life? Not at all. However, if we are diligent in wanting to glorify God, this should happen more often than not as we develop the pattern to humbly seek him to find out what exactly the the problem is and listen to him to find the workaround or solution and then in obedience embrace and use that solution as our way of escaping the power of that temptation. By doing this, we learn to focus on God and look forward to the way of escape that he provides so that we do not live as slaves to sin and begin to experience victory after victory in Christ. Thank you so much for being with me today, and I pray that until we meet again, God would open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in him.